we're so delighted today to have an old friend, Trang Nguyen, who works at JP Morgan and is one of the most informed commentators on the emerging market sovereign world. And we've been trying to get her on for a while and we finally were able to snag her. So Trang, I'd love to begin by asking you to tell us and our students and our other listeners a little bit about what kind of work you do and why is it that you know so much about this market? But first, before that, I wanted to welcome you. So welcome to our little podcast. Thank you so much, me too, and Mark, for having me. Delighted to be here. Well, we are thrilled, as I mentioned. So may we please start with a little bit about your background and the kind of work that has made you and your insights, and I mean here your insights and the insights of your team, uh, so valuable to the market and particularly our segment of the sovereign market. What do you guys do? Why do you know so much? (laughs) So I had the Emerging Markets Sovereign Credit Strategy Team at J.P. Morgan. So I'm a self-ed analyst responsible for publishing views and trade ideas in the emerging market space. And the scope of my coverage essentially is any country that has issued a bond in a hard currency. And so currently, there are about 75 countries under my purview. And the work that I do can range from very high level. We take views on emerging markets. Do we like it? Do we don't like it? We talk about the evolution of the asset class. And then it can range to country views. We might say overweight country A, underweight country B. And then it can range from very nitty gritty as well. So I may also go as deep as you know, I prefer bond X versus bond Y. So the work is very dynamic um, and there never is a dull moment when you work in emerging markets. And especially in the past two years, the pandemic has induced a series of issues for emerging markets. And this is not to say that COVID was to blame for a debt crisis, but it certainly accelerated the day of reckoning for many countries that have borrowed heavily during this past decade of easy money. A lot of my time now is spent looking at special situations in debt restructurings. Emerging market countries have added about 20 percentage points of debt of GDP in debt over this past cycle. And about a quarter of the asset class is now what they classify as frontier markets. So what kind of, what, what kind of landscape are we looking at now? Well, we have extraordinary stimulus that is getting unwound. We also have the expiration of, of, of the official sector support mechanisms as well. So more defaults are simply unavoidable. So that's what my job has evolved into over, over the past two years. And it requires looking at deep dive analysis on, on a lot of these countries, but also in understanding the international financial architecture the common framework, the role of the IMF, official sector, the um, dialogue between the issuers, official sector, private credit, private creditors. These are all very pertinent issues that I have uh, become a lot more involved in. I know that the common framework has been discussed at nauseum on your on on, on your podcast. So. Uh, I'm probably going to touch upon it very lightly uh, in our conversation today. 
we've had a lot of fun following and modeling the restructurings in, in Ecuador and Argentina in 2020. And uh, the other really fun part that I've been involved in is getting into the weeds of reading the bond docs. Probably not the most exciting part of, of my job, but certainly a very important part of it. So who's next? Well, uh, we've, been, we've been very focused on, on countries such as Sri Lanka, El Salvador, Ghana, Ethiopia, to name a few. And the Lebanon restructuring, and recall that they defaulted nearly two years ago, still unresolved, but we think that's going to be a very fascinating one to be watched as well, to be, to be following as well, given the unprecedented scale of relief that's going to be needed and the incestuous linkages between the government debt um, and the financial system. So it's, it's interesting um, that you mentioned the common framework, and I don't have any uh, particular desire to, to focus our attention on that. Um, but a lot of the things you mentioned are, they feel to me as if this is somewhat of a unique time, not just because of COVID, but because uh, in part because of COVID, you have this global shock. You have the backdrop of kind of unprecedented official stimulus that's going away, and you have these new uh, official initiatives that are designed to deal with restructuring. So I, I guess, trying if I can ask you whether you think these times are kind of unprecedented in your experience, or... Is this just um, uh, just sort of another iteration of, uh, of what you've seen before? So I'd say debt, and especially emerging market debt, by definition, is cyclical. So defaults are a fact of life. And when you look at historical default rates, you'll see that, at least for emerging markets, that cycle is around 20 years. So every 20 years, we have a wave of defaults. So the last one was in the early 2000s. But what's different this time is that we have a lot more players in the mix. So we have a panoply of, of issuers and a panoply of creditor types as well. So that makes it more complicated. So I don't think that the phenomenon of a default cycle is new, but certainly we're looking at an unprecedented time because of the, the mix of stakeholders that are, that are at play. So, you know, I'd say that the, the mechanisms that have been devised are very well intended, but also a bit experimental. Um, and it's now been a year since the three countries, Chad, Ethiopia, and Zambia, opted, in the common, opt, opted into the common framework, and they're still unresolved. So I think that there are still lessons to be learned along the process uh, amid this unprecedented time. And I think that along the way, we're going to see that the initially conceived ideas and process with regard to these mechanisms may not play out the, the, the way that, that they were envisioned to. And therefore, there may need to be some enhancements or improvements along the way to make these mechanisms effective. So Trang, if I may take us into some of the specific cases that you guys have written about recently. If I remember correctly, you have a recent note on El Salvador. Can you tell us why that's so interesting and what sort of looking into the nitty gritty has revealed 
And also, if you guys have looked at the documents and the types of collective action clauses and things like that, I, I haven't, I confess, but because, in part because we're so focused this term on Sri Lanka, and we want to ask you about Sri Lanka, uh, particularly in the second half of our podcast today, but I thought it, w- it would be really helpful to, to start by talking about El Salvador and what you guys are seeing there. Absolutely. So... El Salvador, for me, is a really fascinating case. It's a very small economy, $20 billion in nominal GDP, but it has a, a bond stock of close to $8 billion. So as a percentage of GDP, Eurobonds make up a, a, very, a fairly sizable amount. And like many countries in emerging markets, El Salvador has fallen victim to the cessation of tourism revenues in the past two years. It's a dollarized economy, so the traditional adjustment valve by way of of the exchange rate is non-existent. And we're looking at a country where you have a millennial Bitcoin-loving president, President Bukele, who has this grand vision for the country. And it has derailed any prospects with the IMF for a fully funded program. So we all know that the country has been in talks with the fund for a $1.3 billion program for some time now. But last year, El Salvador became the first country to legalize Bitcoin. Uh, so it's adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. And that's caused all sorts of issues um, with regard to concerns about financial stability. And in the latest Article 4, it became clear to us that the IMF has drawn a red line with regard to Bitcoin adoption. So we're no longer working with a base case of, of an IMF program anymore. So when you look at the nitty gritty, when you look into the uses and sources type of analysis, it becomes very difficult, very precarious to see how the country can sustain itself going forward. And you know, when, when you look at the, the, the state of play, this is also un- unprecedented in that, with regard to the debt stock, El Salvador's public debt to GDP is approaching 90%. So it's not a very promising starting level to begin with. And in the note that we published recently, we looked into unconventional sources of financing that, that the government can tap in order to muddle through um, and to see how long they can sustain themselves for. So without the IMF, they'll have to rely on additional financial repression. And what I, what, I, what, what I mean by that is essentially forcing the local banks to increase their financing of the government. They could also look at uh, another unconventional source of financing, which is to lever up the central bank's balance sheet. And this is what Ecuador did back in the Korea um, era. But I think one major wild card here is that the country has this grand vision of issuing a Bitcoin-linked bond. And again, this is also a major source of concern from the standpoint of the IMF. But we all know that crypto is all the rage these days. And while I myself am very skeptical that they can make this a viable source of financing, I think that we've all been proven wrong about cryptocurrency in the past. So I think it's a very interesting, very fascinating story to be following. And uh, sometime in March, which is when the authorities um, have, have, uh, 
penciled in the Bitcoin bond issuance, we're going to see how successful this might be. And I think the other, the other very interesting thing about this particular case is that because the economy is so small, the financing gaps we're looking at are in the magnitude of half a billion dollars. Right? And that gap, while it's a fairly large percentage of GDP, if the Bitcoin bond is even partially successful, or if they've managed to, to kind of find bilateral sources of financing, and by that I mean, you know, even unexpected places like China, they can close that financing gap fairly easily. So the, the ability to muddle through can actually look quite binary. Um, with that said, we do think that the next bond maturity will be paid, and that's going to be due in January of 2023. After that, you have the next maturity in 2025, which also is interesting because there is an election in 2024. And Bukele's vision, um, apart from his cryptocurrency aspirations, is also, also to maintain his popularity. So one of the most popular presidents in the world right now. And a lot of his agenda is focused on maintaining that high level of, of popularity. So the election timeline, I think, will also have some implications with regard to how the authorities will choose to muddle through and navigate uh, bond maturities and bond payments um, until 2025. So on CACs, or Collective Action Clauses, like many emerging market countries, El Salvador has a mix of bond terms. So you'll recall that the enhanced CACs, the 2014 ICMA CACs, are largely present in bonds issued from 2014 onwards. And similar to other countries, El Salvador has issued bonds before 2014 and after 2014. So when you look at the current set of bonds, three of them actually uh, only three of them have any kind of aggregation clauses when it comes to CACs. Whereas in one of them, the 2032 bonds, I'm sorry, I misspoke, two bonds, the 23 and the 20 and the 32 bonds don't have any type of CACs at all. So this is going to be also interesting in how um, a hypothetical restructuring might play out. I know in, in some academic circles, I have seen assertions made that Bonds with CACs, bonds with ICMA CACs usually trade with a premium. Actually, I think in practice, it's the opposite. And why is that? Well, that's because bonds without CACs or without the ICMA CACs prevent the bondholders from being swept into a deal that they did not agree to. And that's exactly how it played out in the restructurings um, in Ecuador and in Argentina. So that's interesting, trying to be... be that your sense is that investors will be chastened, I think, by the experience in uh, in Argentina and Ecuador. And so I would assume would find the non-aggregated CACs more, more attractive. Um, but I, I still, I wonder what a restructuring looks like if we assume that the financing gap doesn't close. You know, you you point out the difficulties with the IMF. I I also don't think of the IMF as particularly millennial and Bitcoin loving. I'm just I'm wondering if there is a need for a restructuring, what that looks like without the fund's technical expertise in particular. Is there a reason to 
trust the numbers, trust the country's estimate of the financing gap that needs to close? I mean, how much of a, if we assume there does have to be uh, a restructuring, how much of a barrier is it to not have the fund's uh, participation? I think that's a great question. It would be quite unprecedented to see a restructuring that does not involve the IMF as an anchor. We all know that the IMF plays a central role in doing the DSA in a debt restructuring, but seeing the landscape in El Salvador and seeing the attitude that Bukele has towards the international community, it's not inconceivable that we might see a debt restructuring that does not involve the IMF. With that said, I have to say that in our, in our research report, we did again, entertain the idea that El Salvador might eventually re-engage with the IMF. Now, whether the IMF would be willing to re-engage with them back is a different question. But to answer your question, hypothetically, if we did not see an IMF re-engagement in a, a hypothetical restructuring, it would be problem problematic because we would lack that credibility anchor. But at the same time, I do think that the investor community has become a lot more well-skilled given the sheer amount of debt restructurings and distress situations that they've been involved in, um, certainly since COVID uh, and certainly since, uh, you know, in, in the past two decades with, with many debt restructurings um, under their belt. And everyone knows how to do their own DSA. Um, so I don't think that a restructuring without the IMF would necessarily mean we don't have someone to punch the numbers because everyone knows how to do that. But I think that it does entertain this idea, this very novel idea in that we may see a departure from the conventional wisdom or assumption that the IMF is a central role in any sovereign debt restructuring. So I think this is a good point at which we should take a break but even though I want to ask uh, primarily about Sri Lanka in the second half, I'm also so very intrigued by what you said, Trang, that you guys are seeing that the bonds with the different tacks are being A, priced differentially, and B, that the price differentiation that you guys are seeing now uh, is literally the opposite of what many of the academic studies had shown. So that's uh, fascinating. And, and maybe we can talk about that in the context of uh, Sri Lanka itself, since they have different types of bonds outstanding and investors don't expect, although maybe you'll correct me, for them to be able to make uh, many more of the upcoming payments and particularly not uh, the July payment. But again, you're the expert. So let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll get to talk about all of these questions, uh, including whether the IMF needs to be involved, since Sri Lanka doesn't seem to want the IMF either, uh, in the second half. So we're back from break, and Trang teed us up with a number of interesting questions all of which bear directly on the situation in Sri Lanka that looks to be the sovereign crisis that is about to go over a cliff. But I'm going to ask uh, Trang more about that 
I hope soon. But the first question I want to ask is this question of separation in bond prices. So question one is, are you seeing this separation in bond prices uh, for El Salvador that you mentioned has bonds without CACs, with first generation CACs, and with second generation CACs? And if so, how, how much in basis points is this differentiation? And then the second question that is directly related is whether, well, I guess it's the third question, is whether you're seeing that differentiation for Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka is closer to the brink and presumably investors care uh, much more about things like CACs, but I haven't looked at the actual numbers and so I'm hoping you can tell us about when and where these pricing differentials might start showing up. Sure. So in Sri Lanka, we're now starting to see some differentiation. But let me answer your first question on El Salvador. Because at the moment, I'd say I don't see that, that differentiation. So the two bonds that I mentioned that don't have CACs, the 2023 and 2032, well, one of them is maturing, maturing in less than a year. And if our, if our view is correct, then that will get paid. So investors are going to get par back. And that bond is currently in the high 80s. The rest of the curve is trading the 50s. And any kind of differentiation is actually driven by the different coupon rates at the moment. So I, I'd say, broadly speaking, in El Salvador, I don't see any of evidence of CAC differentiation at the moment. But that leads me to the more interesting case of Sri Lanka. So when we published a deep dive on Sri Lanka in September of 2020, we did lay out a, a bond terms table summarizing the key features. And we also made the point that we did not yet see any signs of differentiation. And so just to take a step back um, and, and go through some of the key bond terms in, in Sri Lanka. So, Currently, the bond's outstanding. The next maturity is the July 2022 bond, and you have at least one bond maturing, maturing every year until 2030. Of these bonds, four of them contain old CACs. So that means they don't have any aggregation clauses. That's the July 22s, the bond that's maturing next, two bonds maturing, maturing in 2025, and the one bond in 26. The rest of them have enhanced CACs, so single limb, two limb, and obviously single series uh, CACs as well. Pricing wise, so the July 22 bond obviously has the highest price because it has the closest maturity, but for the rest of the curve from the 23 to the 27 bond, they're trading around 52, 53, and the rest of the curve is trading at right around 50 at the moment. So there's roughly a three-point differential between the front and belly of the curve versus the back of the curve. And the belly coincides with the bonds that have the stronger CACs. And again, based on our conversation so far, the stronger CACs are actually the older CACs, right? The, the, the non-enhanced IGMA CACs here. So, it's very interesting to see that it did take quite a bit of time for markets to kind of price in that differentiation. But I, I, I also want to maybe bring in some, some investor feedback that we've heard as well. 
Some are of the view that the CAC differentiation may not matter as much for Sri Lanka. And that's because you have you know, four um, out of 11 bonds that have the older CACs and seven out of, out of 11 with the enhanced CACs. So it's not that one bond out of this 11 bond stack that you know, is the standout in terms of having stronger creditor protection. But you know, I, I still think that four out of 11 uh, still warrants some differentiation. It's less of a, it's, it's not as compelling as Ecuador where only one bond of 2024 had the stronger CACs and actually they did get better treatment in the debt restructuring, but it was only worth about two points in recovery values. So there's a lot of things it seems trying for um, investors to be taking account of these days. Uh, and I'm interested in particular in the kind of shifting narrative we've seen out of, it seems not to be consistent, but at least some Sri Lankan officials, you know, the, the pretty consistent line not so long ago was that there was never going to be a default. There were, was no problem uh, with the foreign exchange reserves. There would be, um, you know, endless money coming in from China or maybe from India. And, and, you know, nothing to see here. Everything is fine. And recently, there have been some very different statements, You know, some of them suggesting an awareness that there's a, a need to, to take on the, the debt crisis. Some of them may be suggesting sort of a, a more of an openness to dealing with the IMF. Can you give us a sense of what's going on and what we should make of this, uh, this seeming change in, in the government's position, or at least in some officials' positions? Yeah, sure. But let me take a, a small step back. So when you look at Sri Lanka as an economy, it is very similar to many Central America economies, right? very tourism reliant. And I've heard, I've heard many investors characterize Sri Lanka as a Central America country situated in the wrong zip code. Now with the zip code also comes with much higher willingness to pay. We all know that Latin America countries perhaps don't have the best track record when it comes to repaying debt. But what differentiates Sri Lanka from other Central America and Latin American countries is this unwavering willingness to pay. And they've honored every bond payment since the pandemic, most recently the January 22 maturity. And back in 2020, when we published this deep dive report that I mentioned earlier, we had asserted that an IMF program was more of a when and not if. And what might eventually compel them to go to the IMF would be some critical level in FX reserves. And at the time, the level that we cited was around 2.4 billion, which is the same level in 2016 when they last went to the IMF. So reserves back in 2019 were closer to 8 billion, it's a quarter of that now. So it's already dwindled significantly. And I usually say that willingness to pay usually correlates with ability to pay at some point. So I think with reserves where they are, and despite you know, a series of successful stopgap measures to short reserves over the past two years, we're now looking at very precarious levels. And 
the headlines that many of us may have seen do suggest that perhaps there is a changing attitude towards the IMF. They're still rather mixed though, I'd say. So there are press reports that the finance minister um, has been in touch with international bondholders about renegotiating debt. There have been press reports about the country engaging with the IMF. But then at the same time, there's also been some comments in response to these headlines kind of refuting or at least partially refuting the significance of these developments. For example, the finance minister going out there saying that the engagement with the IMF is purely technical and is part of any standard Article 4 review. But when you consider all things together, I would say that there, there is evidence of an incremental shift towards an IMF program. And I would characterize this as gradual concession, just given how dire the numbers look. So Trang, given that the numbers are dire there in terms of their dwindling reserves, and given that if memory serves, they have a giant payment coming due in July, and given that there seems to be a significant amount of pain that people are already suffering on the ground. Uh, I would expect that Mark and I would have heard and you would have heard about them at least talking to the law firms that need to prepare a restructuring strategy. We already talked about how they have uh, bonds with these different CACs. If memory serves, uh, they also have some guaranteed debt that is harder to restructure. Uh, In fact, I think that the guaranteed debt might be under English law versus uh, the, the bond debt is under US law. They might also have some US dollar denominated local law governed debt. I mean, this is, we know the history of restructurings. This is not going to be easy or trivial. Uh, You need some serious planning. And I have not heard anything about, I mean, forget contacting the IMF. They need to design a plan. And uh, you need somebody good uh, to put the plan in place. Now, maybe this is all happening in a super super secret way, uh, deep in the basement of the uh, Sri Lankan finance ministry. But uh, I would think that um, you guys would know about it. So what's uh, what's your bet as to whether or not there is a secret plan being uh, put in place so that they'll unveil it right before the July maturity? I wouldn't be surprised if there is work being done behind closed doors. And and to what extent Sri Lanka is involved in this, I don't know, but I can say with a high level of confidence that a lot of the law firms and a lot of the financial advisors have already been doing their homework and they have probably already put together a proposal to present to Sri Lanka when they're ready to listen. Do we have a sense of who holds the the external debt um, and sort of how concentrated the holdings are, or is that information still a bit uh, still a bit unclear? So we know that locals 
and, and this is primarily banks, they hold about 10% of the Eurobond stock. So in terms of concentration of holdings, unfortunately, we don't have complete data. Um, there is some public data out there. You can fetch this on Bloomberg. Um, but Bloomberg is only able to kind of sweep the uh, fund holding sheets of those which are public. In other words, mutual funds and ETFs. So when, whenever we've done this, we've been able to account for roughly one third of the bonds outstanding. So in theory, if all of these foreign holders, which are identified on public sources, band together, there is still enough for a blocking position. But we don't see evidence that one bond or another is more subject to concentrated holdings than another. Uh, and this is different from some of the other restructurings that we've seen where several uh, several holders um, hold the majority or at least hold a blocking position and not bond um, and have therefore resulted in some prefer preferential treatment just based on concentration of holdings alone. So in Sri Lanka, I don't see evidence of that yet. So Trang, I, I want to take us maybe in uh, to uncharted territory, but uh, given the recent experience with Belize uh, and its debt for coral reefs uh, buyback, I was wondering whether you might speculate as to the possibilities that these environmentally friendly characteristics might play a greater role in the upcoming slew of restructurings that we are likely to have given the, economic, the global economic situation that you described at the start of the podcast. And Sri Lanka seems to be a particularly good candidate given how much it has in terms of environmentally valuable resources that one would think the official sector and the rest of the world would care about helping them preserve. Now, I'll, I'll confess up front, I am, I am from that part of the world, very close to Sri Lanka. And I think of Sri Lanka as one of the most beautiful spots in existence. So uh, I very much want it to remain beautiful and I'm worried about uh, environmental degradation, but uh, you know, the experience, I'm wondering whether the experience with Belize suggests anything has changed for you or whether that's just a, a one-off idiosyncratic transaction. I think there's merit to that, me too. Earlier, I said crypto was all the rage. Well, ESG is also all the rage at the moment. And so I do see that there may be a, a decent possibility that this debt restructuring might involve some blue bonds in Sri Lanka. So we all know that the, the pandemic has also resulted in this proliferation of ESG mandates. And whether or not you agree with ESG scoring mechanisms, ESG investment frameworks, the reality is many investors are increasingly focused on ESG metrics. And issuing a blue bond or you know anything with a GSS 
type of label is usually it's usually supportive for for not only attracting the, the 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 type of money that the country might need, but also in lowering the premium required on that bond as well. So Sri Lanka, I think, is a perfect candidate that fits the bill for you know having the profile of of a country that is consistent with needing ESG friendly funding. So. This is not some, something that we necessarily entertained two years ago when, you know, in, in the onset of the pandemic. Um, but as ESG has really taken off in the past two years, and now we have a Belize president, I think that I think it is um, certainly a very plausible and possible idea for Sri Lanka. Well, Trank, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been super helpful and. We have been trying to educate ourselves as much as we can about Sri Lanka in particular. And so we were super, super excited um, because we're lazy. And the best way to educate ourselves is to have people who actually have expertise come and teach us. So um, thank you for doing that. Uh, We really, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It was wonderful.